We have two readings this morning. The first reading is Jonah chapter 2. The second reading will be found in Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 33. And we'll start at Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 33. Jesus said, Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. This is God's word. Uh, good morning, good morning to you. My name's Matt. Uh, if we've not met, it'd be lovely to do so afterwards. And if you're joining us this morning, we started last week looking at this book of Jonah, uh, one of the more familiar books, I guess, of certainly of the Minor Prophets, uh, but um, sometimes reminding of what is familiar is very good, and there are one or two surprises, no doubt. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, this is such an unlikely story to our modern ears. 
We pray that we'd hear it rightly, we'd understand it rightly, so that we trust you. Father, please, uh, by your spirit, take these words and give us ever more grateful, humble trust in your name, we pray. Amen. No matter no matter how familiar you are with it, Jonah chapter 2 is a little bit bonkers. It just is. And, and in one sense, I, you have to run with it. It may well be a familiar story in, in Western culture, but um, a big fish swallows a man, transports him for three days, and then deposits him at his destination where he's meant to be. I mean, that's better than Ryanair. It's, well, of course, it defies logic. It's a stupid story. Can I say that? No, I can't say that. It's a crazy story. Yeah, you can say that. And in one sense, that's the point of it. God could have saved Jonah in any manner of ways. And yet he chooses to do so in a manner which defies logic, which is just extraordinary. And that's the point. It is to teach us a little bit about salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, And if we read this rightly, we'll think, okay, so, oh yeah, God himself left the splendor of heaven, came down to earth to be abused and beaten and die. God himself died in Jesus Christ for the sake of people like you and me. Well, that's odd that God would do that. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he find some other way of saving people? It defies logic. Yeah, yeah. It's extraordinary. And I think Jonah chapter 2, or 1 and 2, are here in one part to, just to remind us of that. That the salvation that God provides is extraordinary. It's not normal. It's not natural. It's not a human design. It's quite wonderful and miraculous and extraordinary. Now, if you are joining us today, the book of Jonah really is about how one man, through deeply painful experience, has come or comes to truly understand the nature of God. Jonah's been a prophet for years and years and known enormous success. He's had the great job, uh, great job in Israel of saying, hey, look, we're going to expand our borders and become really wealthy. And that's precisely what happened. So he's had a good career until this point. But he's never really understood the nature of God's mercy. And he grows in that through this book. Only here does he truly come to grip with, grips with it. Now, if you hear last time, chapter one, really, God says to him, Jonah, you're my prophet. I want you to go to the pagan city of Nineveh and preach there. And Jonah says, no, and runs in the other direction. And we left him thrown into the waves. Uh, God, Jonah tried to escape. God prevented him from escaping. In the end, some sailors throw him overboard. And uh, at the end of chapter one, Uh, You can see it, Uh, chapter 1, verse 15, uh, a bunch of sailors took Jonah and threw him overboard. And that's really where we got to in Jonah's story. He was running away, but God wouldn't let him go. All the while, the Lord pursues him with mercy. He wouldn't let this disobedient believer go. And even before we get going, it's just worth noticing. If you're here this morning as a Christian, but conscious of not really living for the Lord, he won't let you go. 
He brought Jonah to the point of death. He made his life miserable in order to wake him up a little bit. But actually, the Lord so concerned for you, he may take you to the lowest point in your life to wake you up so you cling to him again. But he won't let you go. And if you're not yet persuaded of the Christian faith, well, please do see the lengths to which God will go to to make someone realize that they need to cling and trust in him. Salvation, saving people from hell for heaven for eternity, is God's work. And we see an echo of that in the life of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Look, we're going to look at it like this. Uh, uh, The Lord provides salvation, is the frame really to this section. Then secondly, Jonah called out for salvation. And then I'm going to introduce a little bum note before we finish and ask the question, actually, was Jonah say, excuse me, was Jonah changed by his salvation? Okay, let me give you those again. So first is about the Lord. The Lord provides salvation. Secondly, then we look at Jonah. Jonah, he cried out for salvation. And third, oops, was he actually changed by this salvation before we conclude? Let's have a look then. Uh, first, that the Lord provides salvation. Here's just the end of chapter 1 and verse 17. We said Jonah had been thrown overboard, and then chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided, or appointed, a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord provided a huge fish, as you do, when someone needs rescuing. That's what the Coast Guard tend to do in this country. Send a huge fish to swallow anyone who's fallen in the sea. Now, what do we do with this? Well, if you do any work on, on Jonah, you can read all the commentaries. Every single commentary pretty much tells you the story of um, James Bartley. James Bartley was a, 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 on a whaling expedition in 1891. Whale is spotted. James Bartley is one of the harpooners. They're with the sort of harpoon guns. Uh, so on, they get sent out in their little ships, the little boats to the rowing boats to get near the whale and harpoon the whale. Uh, but the whale is a bit, um, uh, a bit too big for them, and uh, James Bartley and a number of others get uh, thrown into the sea. Uh, he's presumed dead because they can't find him afterwards. Uh, after a long old chase, think Moby Dick if you've seen the film, after a long old chase, uh, the whale is finally captured and hauled on board the main ship, uh, and uh, there's three days later, and they cut open, and there's James Bartley still alive uh, inside the whale. And apparently he was blinded by the acids in the stomach, uh, a bit smelly, a little fragrant, Uh, A little the worse for wear, but still alive. And everyone says, well, there we go. It happened in 1891. It could have happened in Jonah's day. And did that really happen to James Bartley? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Possibly. I quite enjoyed uh, one other commentator's observation. He was less persuaded by the miraculous. He said, presumably what happened was that uh, Jonah was thrown overboard and somehow managed to swim to shore uh, and then spent three days recovering in a pub called The Huge Fish. And, um, and the story got a little bit blurred, and so Jonah was rescued after three days in The Huge Fish. Well, yeah. Um, of course, the only thing that really cares, that matters for you and me, if you're a Christian, this morning, Jesus says it happened. Matthew chapter 12. So unlikely as we find it, 
Jesus says it took place. And again, I think that's the, the, the very nature of how bewildering it is, is the point. So Jesus thinks this happened. The Lord provided a huge fish. Why did he do that? Not a ship. Really easy. If the text said, and then the Lord provided a huge ship that happened to sail past and Jonah, Jonah flagged down the ship, we said, yeah, it's unlikely, I guess, or, or maybe not, but that's good. You can do that sort of thing. Not that. Not, and Jonah grabbed hold of one of the barrels or in chapter one, all the, all the cargoes thrown over, overboard and Jonah grabbed hold of some of the barrels and, and, and sort of tied them together in a raft and, and sailed. He's, well, it's not particularly likely, but he could do that. He doesn't say that. No, he was swallowed by a fish. And you and I are meant to say, well, that's ridiculous. That doesn't happen very often. Or perhaps better, well, that's miraculous. Yes. Or in other words, what does Jonah contribute to being saved? Nothing. He doesn't wave to a ship. He doesn't swim to the shore. He doesn't cling to a barrel. He contributes nothing. And so the Lord provides an implausible, deeply unlikely savior. That's right. And so for you and for me, what does any human being, what does a Christian contribute to their salvation? Nothing. And the Lord provides a deeply implausible saviour, God himself coming down and dying at the hands of creatures that he'd made. Creatures. A human allowing little ants to slaughter it, to bite, being bitten to death by ants. Well, that'd be pathetic. God allows his creatures to put him to death in Jesus Christ. Deeply implausible. Highly unlikely. That's right. The way that God saves people from hell, for heaven, for eternity, is through coming down and dying in the man Jesus Christ. He takes our punishment. We receive his righteousness, his reward. It's so unlikely. That's how it works. Christians are saved in Christ. Not that Jesus, I mean, obviously it's not the parallel, don't push the parallel too hard. It's not that Jesus comes along and says, and and, and swallows us. Of course, of course, I'm sure we can work that out. It's not like that. But from beginning to end, we're saved, certainly the New Testament would say, in him. Let me just chuck in a bomb of, of, of words for 30 seconds. We've got a little slide. Here's how the New Testament would put it when you put it all together. That Christians are saved in him. Don't worry too much. We're not going to spend any time on it. It's just a little bit of a bomb for you. But here we are. Christians are saved in Christ. We're united to him. So from start to finish of salvation. So God calls us. We're born again. We're converted through repentance and faith. We're justified. We get a right status before the Lord. We're adopted as a child of God. We're sanctified. We're made more like Jesus, more holy. We persevere. We keep on going in the Christian faith. We're glorified. We're raised again to eternal life in Christ, in him. It's his work. 
And we're so desperate to say, but what do we contribute? Nothing. What does Jonah contribute? Nothing. He's swallowed. Even I could be managed to do that. Swallowed. Salvation is from the Lord. The Lord provides salvation. But Jonah is involved. Let's look secondly at what Jonah actually does, uh, uh, does do. The one thing that Jonah does is he calls out for salvation. We can get rid of that. Thanks, Susie. Jonah, so secondly, the Lord provides salvation. Secondly, Jonah called out for salvation, which is really then uh, into this song that Jonah sings, verses 1 to 6. Let's look at these. It is, sorry, before I get into it, is, we don't need this. You could quite easily go from chapter 1, verse 17, to chapter 2, verse 10. That, that's, that continues the story perfectly well. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That would work. But everything slows right down. So can, Jonah can say, all right, the Lord did it all, but here's, here's my contrib- con- excuse me, contribution. I just said help. Chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, so we're still not even on the dry land, odd place to compose a song. But from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And in one sense, that's the summary. I just said help. I can't save myself. Then you get, um, uh, I think, a little bit of a sandwich structure. Really, verse 3 and verses 5 and 6 stress the, uh, the metaphors for the danger he was in. And in the middle, you get verse 4, which is, again, his determination to, to seek the Lord. But let's work through it. Verse 3, here's how it felt to Jonah. You held me into the depth. So it was God's work. God was sovereign. Actually, the the sailors had thrown him into the sea. But you hurled me into the depths of the sea, the heart of the seas. The current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. This is completely enveloped here. Verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. It's almost as if Jonah was saying, I I felt like I was being wrapped up in my funeral clothes, in a funeral shroud. The the seaweed was wrapping me up for death. Verse 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Uh, As if I was banished to be imprisoned, barred in forever for eternity. And yet amidst all this description of how he felt at the point of death, did you get verse 4? I said, so everything else around it is a description, but here's what he said. I said... I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Jonah recognizes, oh, look, I, I feel like I'm about to die. That's what it feels like. But my problem is with the Lord. I've been banished. That's the big issue. And yet, I will look again towards your temple. That is, I'll pray the Old Testament, to, to look to the temple is to pray. 1 Kings 8, Daniel 9, the classic big prayers of the Old Testament. To look towards the temple is to pray. Uh, so, so 
here Jonah is saying, look, I, I, I recognize my problem is with the Lord, but I'm going to pray to him. So Jonah shouts out, calls out, cries out in his distress. Okay, very good. For you, for me. Now look, there are lots of different reasons that people become Christians. Lots of different reasons. Sometimes people just read about Jesus and think, he's, oh, he's fantastic, I must follow this man. Uh, uh, sometimes people do have a, a clear view of heaven and hell and eternity and think, oh, okay, I need to do something about that. Sometimes people think it's just a much better way of living. I, I, I see that following Jesus, there's a whole range of reasons people become Christians. It's patronizing to suggest that everyone cries out on their deathbeds. And yet here is a man who has everything stripped away. If you're in water and you think, I'm about to die, you've got nothing. doesn't matter how much money you've got in the bank, how many letters you've accumulated after your name, how many children you've raised. Nothing matters. He's got nothing at this moment in time. And sometimes when you have your self-reliance stripped away, stripped away confronted with what's left, you realize, I need help. Some will know this. For, for 80 years of his life, my father uh, pushed, away, pushed away the Christian faith pretty aggressively. He would refuse to engage. If I tried to speak to him, he would get up from the table and walk away for 80 years. In his 80th year, he contracted cancer uh, and had surgery, and life was painful. And he was a very impressive man, my father, in many ways. It confronted everything in his life overcome significant challenges. But there is no doubt about it, the hardest thing he ever did was die. Physically, dying is hard. If you've never observed it, doesn't matter how strong you are, it's hard. And so in the last 18 months of his life, well, he'd let me read the Bible to him. He'd let me pray. And I have to say, I'm not 100% certain if he was a Christian at the point at which he died. But I have good reasons to hope and to trust and believe that he was. Let me say again, I don't want to be patronizing and say that everyone has that experience. But when everything is stripped away and physically you're weak and you think, what happens if I do confront God? You cry out for help. There's a sense in which in this life, all of us are just treading water. And you can do that for a while. But you get tired. In distress, Jonah recognized his need. And he called out to the Lord. And so I guess he would ask you and me, have you done that? Maybe you've never felt that sense of distress. Maybe you've never had your self-reliance stripped away. Maybe. But it'll happen. Maybe you cried out for salvation. Jonah did. So look, the Lord provided salvation. That's, that's how this 
begins. Then you get it from Jonah's perspective. I, I felt terribly weak and I cried out, verses 1 to 6. But let me, let me just introduce before we finish a, a little bit of a bum note, I'm afraid, uh, which is verses 6 to 9. Was he changed by salvation? Was Jonah changed by salvation? Now, let me just say up front, these verses 6 to 9, I think there are hints and there are pointers, but I'm absolutely allowing his behavior in chapter 4 to interpret how I view him here in chapter 2. The second half of the song, um, and it is poetically two halves. It doesn't really come through in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's kind of two halves to it. That's pretty obvious. Uh, the second half that begins at the top of page 929 in, uh, in six, second half of six. It begins and ends brilliantly. But you, Lord, my God, brought my, my life up from the pit. Yeah, great. But you, I felt pathetic. I felt weak. But you, terrific, Jonah. And verse, end of verse nine. Salvation comes from the Lord. Brilliant, Jonah. You can't fault Jonah's doctrine. He has an excellent understanding of a biblical faith. And yet there are two things in the middle here that I think, ah, I'm not sure he's really got it yet. Uh, And they maybe ask an awkward question of Christians. Let me give them to you. The first is this. There is no confession in what Jonah says. So verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Those who cling to worth as idols turn away from God's love for them. I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I've vowed I'll make good. I'll say salvation comes from the Lord. So, uh, So it's good, I'm safe, Lord. But there's no confession here from Jonah. He knows he's been banished from the Lord's sight, but he never says, it was my fault. I did wrong. Forgive me. I'll praise you for saving me, but I'll not admit that I'd done anything wrong. I think that's a bit of a problem. It comes out clearly when you get to chapter 4. But the Christian is not just one who says, thank you for saving me, but is also one who says, because I was guilty. I was at fault. I had done wrong. Uh, and without the latter, well, I'm not quite sure what we're, save, what we're thanking God for. Thank you for saving me from, who can tell? It's very different from thank you for saving me from punishment for my sins, for I'd done wrong, for I was guilty. So in very practical terms, we'll always have a confession here at church on Sunday. There's nothing magic about it. But it is just a reminder, this is the Christian faith. We say, I come before you, Lord, as a sinner. Even this week, even this morning, even this day, I come before you as a sinner. Thrilled that I'm forgiven in Jesus Christ. It's always both. And if there's not confession in the Christian life, well quite easily have a superficial little faith. If you're happy to sing of God being kind to you, but not of your failure, that's not a deep faith that's ever going to change you. Confession says, I need you. Repentance says, change me. Without those two, it's a funny form of Christianity, really. Let me push it a little bit further. I was talking to one man recently. He'd... um, not at this church, 
uh, he'd lost his job due to embezzling funds at work. Uh, and there was a legal process. He had been sacked, and there was a legal process going on. W would he serve some time in prison? That was slightly uncertain. But um, uh, he said he, he was a, a leader of a home group, a small group at his church. Uh, and at the point where he was dismissed, they had a bit of chat about it, and they asked him to stop leading uh, his uh, home group. And he said, but I'm forgiven. I've said sorry to God, and I'm forgiven. What's the problem? Well, uh, actually, as a mark of your repentance, it would be good for you to step back from leading for any time. So that you get what you've done is significant, it would be good if there's a period where you don't think you're in a position to lead others. Because generally in the Bible, leadership is, you know, there's sort of a proven track record of godliness. It would be good for you to step back. No, I've said sorry. God says you're forgiven. We crack on. Well, your repentance doesn't look that sincere right now. It's like the awkward conversation. So that's the first thing I think about Jonah here in the second half. There's no confession. There's no, I was guilty and you saved me. I am guilty and I need you to save me. And without that, there's something clearly lacking. And we'll see that when we get to chapter four. So there's no confession is the first problem. The second little problem here, he seems a bit self-righteous. So verses 8 and 9, in one sense they're true theology, but there's no compassion here. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, I, I with shouts of grateful praise, I'll sacrifice to you what I've vowed I will make good, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Now who's Jonah having a go at here, those who cling to worthless idols? Well, in the flow of the book, the only people who've followed worthless idols are the sailors in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5, all the sailors are afraid and cried out to their own gods. They were the ones who clung to idols. And Jonah is saying, well, I won't be like the silly guys. I won't be like the silly sailors with their pagan idols. I, I will praise you. I, I will sacrifice to you. The only problem is, at the end of chapter 1, the, the, the sailors have already done that. They're ahead of Jonah. Jonah says, I'll do all these things. Well, the pagans he's criticizing have already done them. And actually, it's just a little bit unattractive of Jonah. I'm better than them. It kind of sounds a lot like the man we meet in Luke 18, the Pharisee. Remember the Pharisee who comes before the temple and sees a tax collector and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like uh, the robbers, adulterers, evildoers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, I give away a tenth of everything I earn. I thank you that I'm better than them. And Jonah seems to be saying a little bit similar. God, I, I'm not like those silly people. I praise and make sacrifices to you. And so I think here's a little question for, for the Christian. Just be careful that we're never like that. If you're a Christian, you never want to be one who says... Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the silly people I work with, you know, who chase after money and, and chase after status. I thank you that I'm not like them who are obsessed with this world and see nothing else. I thank you that I'm, I'm better than them. It's not very nice, is it? There's no compassion there. 
And here is Jonah's issue, which comes up most clearly in chapter 4. Formally, his doctrine, his theology is true. But there is no compassion in him. And he's self-righteous. So if you're a Christian, and you, or indeed well, anyone, you find yourself just thinking, maybe, rather than praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. They are so annoying. God, I thank you I'm not like them. So proud of what they do. So pleased with themselves. God, I thank you I'm not like them. They're just obsessed with what's happening in the financial markets. Oh, I'm pleased I'm not like them. You find those th- hmm. certain self-righteousness there. No compassion. So those are the two things for Jonah. There's no repentance, and he seems a little bit pleased with himself and self-righteous. There's no concern for others. Was Jonah changed? Well, in the time you get to chapter 4, I'm not sure he was. Two things, then we're done. Two little implications. Let me draw, try and draw it together. You want to trust the sign, and you want to be humbled. Firstly, the, the, I guess the main point that comes out of this, certainly the one that Jesus wants to draw, is you want to trust the sign of Jonah. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus then confronted by uh, hostile religious leaders, and they come up to him and say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he says, you get one sign, nothing else but this. Just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. We want to see a sign from you, Jesus. You're going to get one sign, my resurrection, that's it. And for you and me in the 21st century, the word would be, trust the sign of Jesus. He died and was resurrected three days later. Or in other words, you cry out, Jesus, I need you to die for me. I cannot save myself. I trust in your death and resurrection for me. Will you swallow me? You wouldn't say that. But will you take me? I'm yours. I trust you. You've got to trust the sign that is trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so then lastly, be humbled. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you understand that, there is no way to be proud. There's a sense in which Christian and pride, they're like two magnets. You try and bring them together and they should just keep veering away. It's, it's a, you can't be a proud Christian. That's a complete oxymoron. It's a complete nonsense in terms. The Christian is one who says, I called out in my distress and you did everything to save me. Now, Jonah gets that right formally. He gets the doctrine straight in his head. Verse 9, he can say salvation comes from the Lord, but it doesn't affect how he relates to others. There's a sense in which if you really know that salvation is God's work for you, that is an invitation, a demand that you're gracious to other people. Well, let's put it in these terms. How did Jonah arrive in Nineveh? These people who he's going to have no compassion on. Uh, At the end of this reading, chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. 
So just imagine the scene. There's Jonah. He's been sent to the Ninevites, and finally he arrives, and he's vomited out. He's safe, but he stinks. Uh, And there he is, and he arrives in front of a crowd of Ninevites. Who are you? Well, you know, let me just have a quick shower. Uh, But he arrives in front of them, and he stinks. There is no way a stinking Jonah can say, I'm better than you. But still, he does say that by the time you get to chapter 4. And for you and me, there's a sense in which the Christian is one who says, look, I'm safe, but I know I stink morally. We arrive at church and we may sort of dress up, but we sort of, you know. Um, might take a bit more effort than me to, uh, uh, to get ready. But we do know, if you're a Christian, we do know, don't we, that we arrive here and say, I'm saved by Jesus Christ, and that is the most wonderful thing, and I'll sing of him in eternity, but I stink. I'm quite good at covering up the smell. But morally, I need him. And I sit next to you, and I know you stink but I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be myself as superior to you because I'm conscious I stink too, morally. And that's how we live as Christians. We're safe, wonderful, but we stink. We're the children of the living God. He loves us. We're safe in his hands. He'll take us to be home with him, but we're still sinners. And that's how we come. And if you know that, you've got to be humble when you meet others but have compassion on them. The Lord provides salvation. Yeah, we call out for it. And if you know those truths, that if you know that salvation belongs to the Lord, you don't mind saying, I'm safe, but I'm smelly. And so are you. So let's be gentle with one another. And let's praise the Lord who saves us. Let me pray. Let me lead us as we finish. Our great God and Father, we know it is for our good. You put such a strange story in the Bible. We may be familiar with it. We may have read it ourselves many times, read it to our children, but it's such a strange story. And so our prayer would be that in one sense you, you get under our skin with it so we realize how utterly dependent we are upon your work. How utterly extraordinary it is that you should come down and die in the man Jesus Christ. And would we cling to you for our salvation? And would it affect deeply how we relate to others with compassion, with concern, with humility? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.